You're listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. Welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I'm your host, Warwick Schiller, and I have an amazing guest for you guys today. My guest is a lady from New Zealand named Lucy Grace, and... Lucy's uh, occupation, as it says on her website, is spiritual guide, embodied therapist, and poet. And if you're not into any of those sorts of things and you're a little bit scared already, don't be. Um, Lucy has an amazing story, grew up in uh, what you might call a low socioeconomic environment that was um, would be quite scary for most people, but I think that's something that may have really shaped who she is and how she shows up in the world. But this conversation, I've had some pretty amazing conversations on the podcast. Definitely going to rate this one up there as one of the most profound. You know, even if you're not terribly woo at all, I guarantee you'll get a lot out of this conversation. She can she can really get across pretty deep ideas in a way that everybody can understand. So I am pretty sure you guys will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So uh, here's my conversation with the amazing Lucy Grace. Lucy Grace, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Um, You know, this is going to be like the three degrees of separation from Emily Kazdotter. So Emily was on the podcast here a while ago and kind of blew us all away. I think she was episode 120 and it was kind of like we had to have 119 episodes before that to get people to where they were ready to, to hear what, <laughs> what Emily had to hear. And on that podcast, she mentioned Shalane Harkin. And so uh, I posted on Facebook something about that and Shalane Harkin actually commented on it and so I reached out to her and said do you want to be on the podcast and and Shalane was on the podcast and then Shalane told you about my podcast but the thing I wanted to say here was Emily has asked you and Shalane to go to Sweden to do a retreat at her her place in Sweden so yeah it's it's kind of like all coming together it's beautiful isn't it it's beautiful how we're so interconnected we're so interconnected and it's just this energetic magnetism that happens when we're at, vibrating at this similar space, at this similar level, we'll just bring each other in. It's a miracle. Yeah, I, I want to ask, so you said, I think you told me that Emily reached out to you to reach out to Shalant. Is that right? She reached out to me to ask, um, to say, would We'd love you and Shalant. We love both you and Shalant, her and Emma, her um, assistant. We love both you and Shalant, and we wondered if you wanted to come because I'm a poet. I'm a mystical poet. Shalant's a mystical poet. And and she said, we wonder if you guys would want to come and do a writing retreat in Sweden. And it took me about three seconds to say yes because I'm in such awe of her wisdom and beauty and 
a grounded grounded sense of things of the miss of the mystical and so I said yes and we've had some chats back and forth about how we'll do it and it looks like it's going to be August next year in Sweden this summer and Shalana and I are going to pop over and we're going to do probably four or five days maybe a bit longer and it's going to be really we're going to go deep we're going to go into um, we're going to do some somatic writing practices with with people who might want to do some writing to bring out what's within and we're going to look at some equine therapy with um, her as well, which will be beautiful, I think. We're still in conversation and it's still developing, but it's it's penciled in for those dates in, in August. And we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to it. Even just being with one another in that field is magic, right? When you get a group of people together, we're hoping to get 20 or 30 people along to that with the three of us as well. When you get people like that all in one place, I mean, you can't stop the magic, can you? Because that's the no. energy of the field is just going to have its own its own way of things. Yeah, when you get you get people of that wavelength all in the same place, you know we um, the we had a podcast summit last year in San Antonio. Um, we're having another one this year too, and I've just come back from one in Australia. But what we did was we got twenty two of the guests from the first year of the podcast, and we had them present over three days in a to like 250 people in San Antonio and the energy was crazy, like nutty. You know, for a couple of days before, I felt like the floor was moving. Yeah. Um, felt like vertigo, except it wasn't coming from my head. It was coming from my feet. It felt like, you know, the floor was kind of moving. And I thought, that's really weird. And one yeah. day I was introduced, you know, one of the mornings I was doing the introductions or whatever, and I said to the crowd of people, I said, you know, this might sound weird, but for the last couple of days – I felt like the floor's been moving and half of the room shot their hand up and said, me too, you know, it was, it was that sort of energy. And we've been, um, and the energy was the same at the recent one in Australia, but we've been running some retreats here at our place. And it's so interesting, the, the energy of, of, a, of a group of people, you know, I do a, um, a Dr. Joe Dispenza meditation relatively often and one day at one of the retreats, or most of the retreats actually, we will put a horse loose in the arena and we'll put chairs in a circle and we'll, we'll meditate to this Dr. Joe Dispenza meditation. And I've done it quite a bit. And usually the horse will, it's funny, the horse will go around and, and provide different things to different people. It's really interesting. But for me, that same meditation is totally different with that group of people than it is when when they're not there you know what i mean so I'm, yes, just, I'm just talking absolutely. about that combined that combined energy yeah it's that well we know we can measure this right i love this stuff there's a there's an organization called heart math yeah, and they have yep. machines you probably know it, where they can measure the electromagnetic field of, of a human heart and and sufis and other traditions have been saying for years that the heart is the center of intelligence not the brain right. that everything's held in and we can measure the heart the electromagnetic field of the heart 3 meters out and the brain only a few inches out so that that's just that science we can measure that and and so if you think of getting all those hearts in a room and those electromagnetic fields combining then it's creating something tangible and measurable, mm -hmm. let alone the horses. I read something the other day that said horses have three times 
that the electromagnetic fields in their heart. Now, people, I'm not an expert. You guys will probably know better than me. But we get, and so they were saying this is why equine therapy is so is so powerful um, because of that electromagnetic field coming from the horse's heart and I love this and that's measurable this isn't woo-woo funny stuff you know we're starting to create instruments now we can measure this and I love this what happens when we physically get together in one space what takes over the unseen you know we can't see it with our eyes but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist just like we couldn't see bacteria before we had microscopes to measure it it didn't mean the bacteria didn't exist it just meant we didn't have the tool to measure it so what happens when we get 30 people in a room with Shalan and me and and the horses and and Emil and what happens there what happens and magic happens that's what yeah Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be pretty amazing so let's get on to your story so your it says you're a spiritual guide, embodied therapist, and poet. And those are not things that you, when you're in high school, you go, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to college <laughs> and I'm going to study spiritual guide, embodied therapist, and poet. So it's, not, it's one of those things that's not a, um, your average occupation. So I kind of un- want to unravel how you, how you came to... Um, to be doing that because that's not you've you've done a lot of other different things in your life i have um, yeah can we start out with your childhood where'd you grow up and what was that like yeah so you're right i absolutely didn't plan this it's more of a listening to life and moving with life which people listening will know about when we we know the deepest thing but childhood for me was the first I would say 37 years of life contained a lot of suffering and childhood was no exception to that. It was, it was the beginning of that. So I was born to a solo mum in New Zealand um, who was kicked out of home for being pregnant. She was young. She was 20. She'd already had one child that she had adopted out um, and was kind of forced to adopt him out by her very religious family when she was pregnant and she was in such grief about giving that child away hmm. that she got pregnant with me and we didn't know who the father was. There were three options and all three left. They all said, you're on your own. And in those days, DNA testing was so expensive. So that, that, that left us on our own and we ended up in a woman's refuge home. So I was born in a woman's refuge home And when I was five, we ended up settling. We went from couch to couch for the first five years, whoever would have us. Every now and then we had a little rental property where mum might clean the big house and we lived in the little house of the the fancy people. Um, Now, I just remember a lot of joy as well. Like, you know how things aren't black and white? So that we were quite poor and we didn't have a lot and we had to go from couch to couch. And there was a lot of grief in that for me because you know, memories like the children who lived in that house, Mm. we would be on the couch, but those children had beautiful bedrooms full of toys. And I would look longingly at their toys and I wasn't allowed to play with them very much and things like that. So there was a lot of grief, but there was also beauty. From a very young age, I was filled with a sense of joy, kind of ordinary joy, like the beingness of me felt like that. People talk about anxiety in childhood and things. And that's not, that wasn't my experience. I, I remember a lot of, yeah, ordinary joy and 
when I was that's, five. That's, that's interesting because it's almost like you had every right to be anxious or sad or any number of things, you know, in the, mm. in the circumstances you grew up in and you had this, this joy. Do you, do you have any sense of wh- where that came from or why, why you showed up that way in I have very no harrowing idea. circumstances? Yeah. I have no idea to this day. Like my aunt and uncle, um, often say to me, you were like this little Buddha baby. You, we would mind you for your mother and you would wake up in the morning and you'd just lie in your crib. They would say, like, you wouldn't even cry to be t- picked up and you'd just lie there staring for hours. At- and I've always been like that. My nourishment has come from inside. I've just found this kind of pool of, yes, simple joy, ordinary joy, and I couldn't tell you why. It's not a virtue. It's not I've done nothing good to get that. I, I don't know why. And then when I was five, um, we managed to buy a house. Mum saved from cleaning other houses. We managed to buy a little house in a really rough neighbourhood, one of the roughest neighbourhoods in New Zealand, full of gangs. And um, Where is that? It's in Fairfield in Hamilton. So back in those days it was, if you picture kind of state housing with graffiti on the outside, um, barefoot kids, bombed out cars, on the yards for a year or two, the police, uh, sorry, the postman couldn't come down our street and deliver the post because they were getting shot at. And we don't even have guns in New Zealand. Like it's not like the US where there's guns. We don't have them. Um, and this that, is in Hamilton. Yeah, a place called Hamilton. And, really? Yeah. I've been to Hamilton. I used to present at a horse expo there. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Out at, 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 at Mystery Creek. And I never thought of Hamilton looks like this rural bucolic <laughs> setting that's uh, you know when you said gangs and things like that i was thinking like auckland near the airport or something or other you know what i mean like no. once were warriors type situation. exactly once were warriors exactly like that i can't believe you've seen that i don't know any people oh, yeah. in the u.s that have seen that my childhood was exactly like that i was the only white girl in my street the state housing was like that it was exactly that Hamilton has its fancy places. It can be really? beautiful, like horses and the river, and the, it has its wealth, like a lot of places, and it has its deep, deep poverty, especially back in the eighties then. But it's still there now. A lot of it's I been gentrified, and um, I wasn't aware of that. Um, you asked, you said you didn't can't believe anybody in the US has seen Once for Warriors. Do you know that they actually use that movie in? rehabilitating domestic violence offenders in the US. Wow, that is incredible. I love that. Wow. That's amazing. Because it's so it's so powerful to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It you know, it's like a slap in the f- I imagine like for a domestic violence offender, it it's like a slap in the face to you know, and you know, it really shows them what's what's going on. But yeah, that movie is that's right. And look, there's a lot of Kiwis who don't know, you know, and especially because I look like a, a girl who had a trust fund or and I can sound like that because I taught myself. There was a point at school where I'll go into that later, actually, but I taught myself to speak differently and to walk differently. And But where I grew up, it, from five onwards until I was 18, we were in this one house and <clears throat> there was a huge amount of violence. It was exactly like that. So um, 
we were broken into probably every at least every month it was just mum and I on our own and people we were kind of sitting ducks in that way people knew there was a woman and a young girl and there was no man in the house and they knew so we got targeted a lot and you know we had bars on the windows um we had locks on the inside of all the doors so inside the bedrooms had these big bolts so that if someone broke into the into the kitchen when we were in the bedroom asleep we could quickly get up and lock ourselves in the bedroom so they couldn't get to us we had two doors two front doors (laughs) um so that we could open one and look through a, a screen to see who was there and it had bars on it so it was safe um, we had these cans that, that made a really loud noise beside the bed. It was big. It was real. And, you know, many things happened in that time, many, many things. that uh, The gangs were rife. And to get into a gang, you were often given challenges that you had to do. And, and one of those challenges could be to rape a woman in front of their children. So when I was eight, um, someone broke in with that intention. He, he, he was only 18 or 16. I can't remember. I think he was 16. He seemed really old to me at the time, but I was eight. And he had to, that was his task to get into the gang. You have to rape. So he broke into our house. He, he got in. Um, and that night, I, I remember I was in bed and I was tossing and turning. I could not sleep. It felt like there was this presence kind of waking me I just kept and I felt this I can't sleep and I ended up hearing someone in the hallway with mum and I went out and I actually saw him he already had her handbag and what meagre money she would have had in there Um, but I actually went and called the police she'd always said you know if you can grab the phone and call the police so we kept phones in lots of rooms in the house for that purpose so I did I called the police and Right, and, and I had, he was in the hallway and I went into the bedroom and sat and hid in the corner and I was on the phone to the police and he came in and pushed her on the bed and started beating her up and was going to, to rape her. And then he turned and he saw me and mum obviously freaked out and said, um, please don't hurt my baby, please don't. And then he realised I was on the phone and the, it was the, the police on the other end. He grabbed it out of me and they said, it's the police, we're on our way and he ran off. So, but a week later, um, he did, he was successful in raping another woman. So we got really lucky. And I often felt like that. I often wondered. We had a lot of close calls. You know, I was beaten up sometimes. and um, But I never really got seriously, seriously hurt. I was never really exposed to anything I mean, all of that is traumatic. Later in life, I was um, diagnosed with PTSD and, and you know, mm. lying in bed when torches were coming through the window was actually often far more terrifying to me because I think as an eight-year-old, I didn't quite realise the severity of the situation with someone breaking right. in to do that to mum. I didn't know what they were thinking. I didn't. I just thought he's going to hurt her, but I didn't know how. Later in life, I, I realised and... So childhood was a mix of this. It was a mix of a lot of different kinds of violence. You know, I had very few toys, but um, sometimes they would break in when we were gone and they would just smash up the toys with baseball bats instead of stealing them. Um, So things like that were a lot of grief for for a young heart. Um, We often didn't have enough food to eat. Um, There were 
times where we'd go for a day or two without eating and we'd just have to wait for the welfare check to come in and that was okay that was okay you know like you I, I learned a lot I learned that a human being can go without food for the tummy but what was hard for me was food for my heart for my soul my mum also had mental health um issues and things and she was very up and down and she loved me deeply it was just the two of us obviously in the house for the whole for the whole 18 years um she loved me deeply she was incredibly sensitive and kind and kind of the black sheep of her family from a very religious family where she'd been more rock and roll and and having kids young and things but she also was incredibly kind and wise and connected we didn't have a car because we were so poor so she used to um we used to walk everywhere and look at the trees and the birds and she would point out nature and that connection and she had so much wisdom around humans you know if I was at school I remember coming home and saying this person was so mean to me that you know they called me ugly and I'm and she would say their hearts are hurting people don't hurt others unless they're in pain so she taught me a lot of really really in seeing you know seeing into humans not Mm. and another gift I got from mum she had no expectations of me I never grew up with an external gaze that said in order to be loved you have to be do get become anything you don't have to be a lawyer a doctor she used to say Lucy I love you exactly as you are and she said it over and over again she would say, you can end up in jail and I will love you. And something in that, you ask, why did I have ordinary joy? Honestly, Warwick, I think a lot of it looking back is that I didn't feel, I felt deeply loved and deeply lovable no matter what I was or did or became because I existed. You know, what's that's fascinating. You know, I follow a lot, like on social media stuff, on like say Instagram or whatever, I follow a lot of therapists. Okay, you know, social media gives you lots of whatever you look at, you know what I mean? And and so on, um, say Instagram, I follow lots of therapists. And one of the main topics of conversation with any therapist is having people realize their own self-worth or, 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 you know, or having people overcome their childhood of where you got recognition for doing things. And so you, you know, you had to achieve things in order to receive love. That's right. And, that's, and it's huge there's and so much unraveling in that. And it sounds like even though you had some pretty crazy circumstances, yeah, you didn't have that. And, it, and, and it's, it's like, that's it. Like you, like growing up the way you grew up, you should be insti- probably institutionalized or, or have serious <laughs> issues. You know what I mean? But that's that's one thing that <clears throat> that you didn't have, and yeah, that's that's fascinating to me. I think it's I think it's 
it's layered so there's more to it but yes absolutely and I also didn't have it from culture because we get these messages that in order to be enough in order to be worthy we have to do get become achieve but right. we don't just get them from our parents right especially American culture and that Kiwi as well we get them from television we get them from sororities we get them from teachers we get them from school we get them from bosses Every piece of culture, literature, social media is sending us the message that we're not enough just as we are. Mm. And and we and so we go out and we try and accumulate <clears throat> light. We try and accumulate reasons for you to love me, accept me, and value me. So if I do this job, you'll value me. For some people, if my body is is good enough, you'll value me. So they go crazy at the gym and they da da da. da. For others, it's if I'm beautiful enough, you, you, I'll find, I'll find belonging, I'll find acceptance, I'll find value, and we all chase different things. That we make a different yardstick, and for some of us, it's a series of yardsticks. I have to be beautiful, accomplished, CEO, wealthy, da, 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 and we chase and we chase and we chase and we spend our lives on the rabbit hole, on, on the, in the rat race of chasing these things, believing then I will feel whole, then I will be loved, then I will belong and I'll be safe. But actually, actually, we get each thing and each time it's never enough, right? The body's never quite good enough. That promotion, I thought I would feel something when I finally got that promotion. It's actually not good enough. I got a bigger house. I still don't feel whole. So none of those outside things can actually get us what we believe, but culture tells us it will. And often our parents give us those messages because they too carry that wounding they have been given that same wounding so they give it to us because you as my son are a reflection of me and if you don't achieve do get become then I look bad so these things can be subconscious scripts running and you're right there's there's such a release if we can go into those places and really start healing, there's such a release and, oh, my God, I am loved and I belong because I am, because I exist, really. If we can really get there, it takes work, there's layers, there's so much to it. And I did have wounding. I did because my wounding was just different. I grew up watching my mother at the dining table in our little tiny house, chain smoking, abandoned by three men, right? My all three fathers. For me, it wasn't abandonment. It, it was a huge abandonment wound because I wasn't just abandoned by one, I was abandoned by three. So I looked at her abandoned by men, abandoned by life. She couldn't get a job. Um, the rest of our family who, who were wealthier and more accomplished in the traditional sense looked down on her as being less than I was the poor cousin right, right. and they would tell me you're better than your mum you know, look at you you're so positive you're so full of light you're so blah 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 that kind of 80s toxic positive thinking vibe and actually I was struggling a lot with the break-in so I did have all of this ordinary joy and I did have all of this light but on the other hand I think I, I also needed somebody, a safe space and somebody to take me aside and say, what do you need? What What's going on for you? And I just couldn't find that anywhere. So I almost had to push it all down and 
And later in life it came out, because this is what we do, is until we're ready to heal, we kind of put it aside. It doesn't take from that ordinary joy and that beauty. Like that was still there, but it's not the only story. We are nuanced as human beings. And so I grew up watching mum abandoned by life and everyone. So I got this idea, I have to be really special. If I, I didn't realise this, it wasn't conscious. We can get these subconscious scripts running. I have to be really special or I'm going to be abandoned. And so I took that on. I had to be, you know, I was quite um, hard on myself in the sense that not achieving a particular job or getting a particular car or a house or it was never, that was never my yardstick. My yardstick was um, kindness, goodness. (laughs) Can I take care of people? My own heart was breaking so much in, in so many ways and the interesting thing was that mum would walk me to the ex- the fancy school. So we lived um, on a big, dark, empty park that had drug dealers and, and, you know, things like that going on. And it, the school was on that park as well, the, near, the nearby school, and it was really violent. And so I'm so lucky that she had the sense to walk me to the fanciest school. And that was before zoning in New Zealand. And so I could, but it took 45 minutes to walk there. We didn't have a car. She went, walked me there and back every single day. And so I was kind of surrounded by people who didn't understand what I was going through at all. These, you know, they had lovely lunches in their lunchbox and lovely, lovely backpacks. And although I would look at them, wow. And, but, but, I found myself able to um, listen to them and connect to them and hear their troubles, which seemed um, which seemed easier than mine in a way. And so I could empathise and I could hold that because I had built this capacity to be with human suffering because I had to be with my own. And really where I lived, inside the house could be quite violent. Mum could um, break down and, 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 you know, beat me and things like that. And, and then she would come to and she'd say, I'm so sorry, love. I've, I'm just not sure how I'm going to pay the bills. I'm just stressed. And she was beautiful at that, saying sorry. But I didn't really have a place to go inside the house that felt nurturing and safe to completely and then outside the house was full of violence so I used to go in the only it's it wasn't conscious decision it was just what the being did so I would go into my breath and into my heart and I would feel that deep stillness and light inside and I would reach to I say and and kind of quote Max God I thought of it as God in that childlike way Um, And I still call it that. I still think of it as that. We might call it life force, consciousness, awareness, God, the trees, you know, ether, whatever, the light that runs through everything, a rock, a horse, you, me. But, you know, my mother turned to religion when I was about seven. Um, And so I would go to church with her and get really hot hands and worship along with everyone. But I was always a lot more loose than I didn't. I could see through the dogma. You know, I would say to mum, how is this love if, we're, if people aren't allowed to be gay? 
how is this love if we're saying this is right and this is wrong? That's not love. I used to say it at a really young age. And and one day I remember her saying to me, oh, I don't want to go to church today, but we have to. She was quite, you know, she's young too. If I was seven, she was only 27. And and uh, I remember saying to her mum, like a man's hands made that church. It's bricks. Like church is here in the trees. God made the trees. We don't have to go if you don't want to. We can have our church here. And she said, um, that's blasphemy. You can never speak like that again. She was so mm-hmm. and still is indoctrinated by, you know, the fear. There's a right way and a wrong way. Her God is a God of fear. Her God hated her as much as she hated herself Mm. because we reduce our gods to what we are. Actually, existence is limitless, isn't it? It's limitless. The body of God is everything. And so... So can I interrupt for a sec? You just said that your mum is still that way? She's still this way. Yeah, yeah. She's very religious. Yeah. So how... Can you tell me how is that dynamic these days with, you know, how you've ended up and what you've ended up doing and stuff? What's that dynamic like? Yeah, it's such a good question, Warwick. It's such a good question. I let her love me as she can. I let her be what she is. Sometimes I feel pain. The bo- like everything arises in presence, so sadness can come up because I can't really connect. She can't really see me. But it's not because she's bad or wrong, right? right? It's because she can't. If I speak French to an Italian and then I get frustrated because you're not understanding me, The problem is with me. This is an Italian. They speak Italian and she has every right to make the choices she makes and to live her life as she sees fit. And who's to say I'm right and she's wrong? We unknow. We do not know. It's a great mystery. What I like to say about any tradition or religion is it can have so much benefit It's so deeply welcomed by me, so long as it helps us to become more patient, more loving, more kind, and more whole individuals. It doesn't matter what we do to get there. But what I struggle with is when it actually does the opposite, right? It makes us more separate. I use my religion um, to show you how you're bad and wrong, and I'm And that comes from fear. So if we can see where it comes from, I'm so afraid of getting it wrong that I cling to these ideas and rules. So it's not always uh, easy, but I see it as my work. So when I'm with her, I try to really love her as she is, just as she is, and knowing that whenever she's ready, if she wants to, she'll move through and come into a place where she can release some of the fear. But, you know, I think like any fundamentalist, like any fundamentalist, and there's many, they take many forms. You can get fundamental, fundamentalist, you know, spiritual types 
Right. You know, and you can get fundamentalist campaigners. You know, why won't you sign my peace petition? And actually, they're not coming from peace. So we can talk about love, we can talk about peace, but are we coming from it? Are we contributing that? So if I were to get frustrated and angry all the time at mum, and those emotions will arise, but I meet them. I meet them and I process them with myself. So if sadness comes up, I grieve. You know, like I'm, I've written a poetry book of mystical poetry. Here's an example. When mum was visiting and we were at the local market, I never really even told her because I knew that it would upset her. She said, oh, you're going to go to hell. You know, that's not... Yeah, and uh, a man, God love him, in my community ran up to her and said, oh, your daughter's an amazing poet. Wow, you must be so proud. And I thought, oh, no, here we go. <laughs> and she and he said, she's got her books coming out. And she turned around and, and she just she just didn't, she didn't even ask. She didn't even say, oh, what's your book about? Wow, you've written a book. She just said, well, she would be good at writing because I helped her so much with writing. And I, for a second, I felt pain. <laughs> like, oh, I'd love her to be proud. You know, that natural thing in all of us. We want our parents to see us and be proud of us. And then I just let the pain be there, felt that pain, didn't try and push it away, didn't try and turn it into blame or anger or make her wrong. She is who she is. I watch it come up and I go, yeah, it's sad. I feel sad and I'm allowed to feel what I feel and then it transmutes and then it can go and then I can be with her. So there's processes like that that happen in the body and in the body-mind and there was a long time when I was younger that I wished she could be different and then I decided what about all the beauty? Like we get these inheritances from our parents. We get an inheritance of shit, <coughs> their wounding, and we get an inheritance of gold. And it's all true all at once. We don't want to bypass the shit and just focus on the gold. But nor do we want to bypass the gold and only see the shit. We, if we can get to a place where we hold both as, yeah, that stuff is hard. And we can often see our mother or father standing there. And see their ancestors behind them in a row. And see, yeah, my dad was abusive or my mother was whatever she was. But where did that come from? She was given that. So she got her inheritance of shit from her father and his father and his father. And, and it doesn't make it okay. It isn't their fault, but it is their responsibility. But it can help us with compassion. It can help us with She's not bad. She's wounded. What's happened to people? All and just like me, all of us have our blind spots. All of us have the places we're stuck or bound, right? And so just like me, I hurt others. I do things that I don't realize I do. And, but yeah, it, it's been our journey and it gave me so much because if we go back to that childhood period, I had to go inward. I couldn't find connection outside. I couldn't find in my neighborhood with my with my with my family. <clears throat> I couldn't find myself outside of myself. So when I said we don't have to go to church and she said that's blasphemy, I went through this, okay, I can never talk about this again. Like this connection I have with God or life or existence, 
I can never tell anyone about this because so that's kind of what I did so I had this people often say you were such a light filled child like I had this glow because I was finding that connection and nourishment in great spirit in the infinite and I would sit in silence and listen to my breath and fill what felt like filling from the inside out instead of reaching for sweets or toys or another after school club or lots of friends or all the stimulation outside of me or achieving A's to get recognition or whatever we do as kids I would that is all passing right and not by any virtue just by necessity I would go in and I didn't realize that's actually meditation. I didn't realize that that's <laughs> actually a thing. I had this kind of welfare child, Ashram. I was alone. We had no money to go anywhere or do anything. We had no car. We, I hardly had any toys. We didn't have a TV most of the time. And when we did occasionally get one, we'd end up selling it to buy food. We, I'd, I had hardly any stimulation. So I would, I was like an Ashram. And so... A lot of my childhood was like that, being by myself. I was an only child and just going to God. And I could hear guidance. It was like a voice inside me from a young age. Um, I think I was burnt into being by necessity. I had to find guidance. And... But it, I want to be clear, it, it, it's way stronger now, but it wasn't my voice. People say, oh, how, how did you know? It, just, it was completely, it was another voice. I couldn't um, have said the things that the voice would say to me. So and I'll give a, like an example of that to help. But little things, lessons, like I, there was a, a little girl who moved in across the road with her grandparents and she had no toys and um, she would come to my house to play with toys. And I had a few Barbie dolls because I had I would bake um, donuts and I would sell them door to door to make money and then I always wanted Barbies. That was what I would buy. And I, so I had a couple and I had a few dresses and things. And one day I heard, give those toys to her. And I remember being like, oh, no, but I love these Barbie dolls. And it was like, give those toys to her. G- giving will bring you more joy than then keep it try it like try it so I told mom and mom said be careful you're gonna have to she'll have to keep them but you can't take them back and I said no no so I took them to her and I gave them to her and sure enough I was filled I mean this sounds a bit silly but I was a little girl right so it's a simple lesson it sounds a bit Pollyanna-ish but I was filled with joy giving seeing her face seeing how much joy she got from them. I could still go and play with them at her house across the road with her. I was filled with joy and filled with a sense of having changed something for the better for her. And um, lessons like that, so I would hear their words and things. And that was my childhood. I, I stayed there until I was 18. Um, and I ended up getting into university. And I was that was crazy because I had been so sheltered yet so unsheltered in childhood right I hadn't been exposed to conditioning we didn't have literature music much television we didn't have many books I got all my books from the op shop um that my mother worked at the secondhand shop sorry I think you call it in the states and and so I hadn't been exposed to to much and 
I did go to school. I had a library there and things, but you know, this is before the internet. This is so I, I ended up at university in the big city for university, and by some miracle, I got into the, the best degree for journalism in the country. And didn't even know how to apply for degrees. My mum had never been, and and I um, only applied for one degree, which you would never do, right? You'd apply for for a bunch because you might not get accepted. I just applied for one because I didn't know, and by some miracle, I got in. I didn't have good grades, but I did get in. Um, before you before you go on with that story, I just want to back yeah. up just a little bit. I'm so yeah. glad I asked. So glad I asked the question about how. You know, you said your mum's still very religious and yeah. I said, so how is that dynamic now? And the reason I'm glad I asked that question is because, you know, from a lot of the guests I've had on the podcast, well, I've, I've had feed, a lot of feedback from um, people that listen to the podcast about how hearing the stories from the guests have, you know, kind of changed their outlook on life, sent them in different directions, mm-hmm. down different paths, things like that. And I'm sure a lot of those people that that's happened to, it may not have happened to their spouse or their family members mm-hmm. or whatever. And there, and there isn't really a, you know, there isn't really a place you can go to to say, hey, what happens when you start looking at the world differently and the people around you don't? So that was a, an amazing lesson on how – what you said um, was an amazing lesson on how to navigate that space. Yes. Um, there's a lesson in grace and humility and, yeah, I, I just want to say yeah. thank you for sharing that because I think I, – I really think um, a number of listeners will get a lot out of that in relation yeah. to where they're at. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you know, it's huge. It's a lot of my job. I'm uh, an awakening support mentor as well, so I do that. So I say spiritual guide. Some people call me a spiritual teacher. I don't like the word teacher because for me we're all teachers and we're all the taught. You teach me, I teach you as we sit. But, but a lot of people come to me and they will say that. How can I be awake in this sleeping world? How can I change in all these ways and open my heart and do all these things? And, and, and my family don't understand me. My friends don't understand me. All the things, right? And one thing that's helped me immensely is seeing, you know, it's funny, but it's the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. It's a cliche. But if we think about the natural process of that, right, that caterpillar is growing, is changing, and eventually when all is ready and all is well, it turns into the most beautiful butterfly. We wouldn't dream of ripping out a caterpillar and screaming at it, turn into a butterfly, you're useless, why are you such an idiot? It would die, right? The same with our vegetable garden. We wouldn't scream at a seed to become a vegetable. We wouldn't scream at a flower to bloom when it's not ready. There's sacred process. And every single one of us, including myself, is in that sacred process. We're always becoming more than what we are. We're always deepening. So if we can look at another and say, they say they see things differently. 
right? They see things, but they are in their sacred process. Now these voices come in, yeah, but he doesn't do his work. He doesn't, you know, he should go to a blah, blah, blah. But just like me, just like me really helps with any judgment. It's an equalizer. There, there was a time when I didn't do my work. There was a time where I couldn't do that work, right? And whether that work is seeing a psychotherapist to clear or clear blockages or woundings, whether that work is meditation, whether that work is running, whatever we know that we need to do to emerge into the fullest version of ourselves. There was a time when I didn't. There was a time for all of us, often in and out, where we can't, we can't, we simply can't. We're stuck, we're lost, and that is part of the process. That's actually part of the sacred process to, to become lost, to be found. So wherever mum is at, wherever you are at, wherever I am at, can I simply be with that? Can I say, well, that's where the caterpillar's at in its process. I don't need to force anything. Life is happening in perfect timing. And you can only really emerge into all that you are when you want to. So it, I want to say this, though. It doesn't mean that I want to spend every day with that person, right? Because it's just not nourishing or enjoyable for me. Mm. So this isn't some kind of martyr complex where, oh, I just give and give and I just hang out with these people. all the No, no, no. I see it for what it is. And I say, okay, I'm so um, honoring of your process. You do you. And I'm going to be way over here doing me. <laughs> so, like, you know, I'm going to be with people that nourish me and which uh, who right. I enjoy. And look, you're my mum. So, if we're talking about family, if you need if you need to borrow money, I'm here for it. If you need uh, a hug, if you want to hang out, I'll do it. To as as long as that yes is a really true yes. So when it gets to the point, I know I can do a few nights and then if it gets it gets a bit much. And honestly, I think it's probably too much for her too. She's like, I don't know, what are you on about? And I'm like, what are you on about? So we just, you know, damage control. I do a couple of nights right. and then I yep. yeah. So a minute ago you said you were, I forget what you said you were, but it's not, it's not spiritual guide, embodied therapist, or poet. It was awaken something, something, something. Yeah, I, I do. Um, it's part of the spiritual guide, but awakening mentor. So people who okay. have these deep okay, processes. Okay, so let me ask you about on. that before yeah. you get before you get into there. In case anybody listening has no idea what you're talking about, what would how would you describe awakening? Yeah, it's it's deeply varied and vast depending on the individual but there are themes and it tends to be when we call it waking up because we'll have a shift in our being and they can be a range on a spectrum from low volume to high volume but we'll have a shift in our being and it's as if we wake up out of a trance, out of a dream, and we see everything differently. Mm. We see ourselves in within the world and reality differently. We see reality differently. <laughs> we see others differently. Um, sometimes the borders of our body dissolve. 
we kind of become what a sense of being one with everything. Um, and it, I don't want to go too deeply into it because it might just freak people out a bit. But, um, but there's a lot involved in that where a lot of compassion comes in, a lot of sensitivity. We kind of return to our childlike openness, mm. but in a really grounded way. Like we see the beauty in others. We see the beauty in life. And But a lot of people, when they're awakening, can have really intense experiences. It can be really scary for some people because our old identities fall away. That's the main thing. If you're wondering, have I awakened? It's it's like a complete shift in our operating system. Our operating system completely changes. Um, yeah. And don't you think there are many, 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 many steps to it? It's not like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Um, and that, you know, for me, I had an experience a number of years ago. I've had a few since, but I was uh, I was sitting around talking to some people one night, and all of a sudden, it's like the room tilted on its axis, and I kind of just broke down. I'm, I'll, like the con- the conversation just kind of made me the conversation that was going on made me realize that. I don't know, I was full of shit or whatever, but, you know, it kind of made me look at the world completely different. But the whole room tilted on its axis. It was was the weirdest thing. Um, At the time, it was the weirdest thing. (laughs) You know what I mean? And But but it was that shift to where I looked at everything differently afterwards, especially me. And I don't – But and for people that think, well, you know – this is all kind of crazy stuff. It wasn't a big shift for me. I've got lots of shifting left to do, but it was it was a shift to where I realized that I now looked at the world completely differently than I had previously. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's still a lot of, and since then I've had several shifts to where, oh, now I look at the world differently again. and I, And I think... I mean, I was a I was a slow learner. Like I was fifty before this happened. I basically looked at the world the same way for fifty years, and then had this, you know. And I've had, like I said, I've had a few since. But you know, I don't want to scare people off. Um, I think it's, I think it's perfectly normal, and it's part of the journey. And some people may go their whole life and not, yeah, not make that shift. And and for me, what I've found is. <clears throat> helping people with their horses, a lot of people have the they're indoctrinated into looking at horses a certain a certain way. You know, you you look at things a certain way and you create your own reality. So a lot of the problems people have with their horses, it's actually the problem is the way they look at the horse, which creates the problem. Which and once they have, for me, I think that's where sometimes I help people with this stuff is once they have that shift and they go, I've looked at horses like this for however long, and I suddenly realized that was just a way of looking at it. That's not exactly what's real. And now that I look at differently, the horse behaves completely differently. So I was kind of creating my own reality with the horse. But I think what that does for people is it goes, it gets them to think, what else am I looking at a certain way? You know, it's kind of the the the, the way in, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. What beautiful work. Wow. That's life-changing, right? Because we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. We see it as we are. We look out of these eyes and we project all of our own fears, our own stuff and everything. And people listening to us talking might say, what do you mean? You like you had a shift and you and you saw the world differently. I grow all the time and I, I might learn something and I see the world differently. This is different. This awakening is inside out. It's a, it's a ch- complete change. And and like you say, we're ever deepening. It, there's no end end point to it. It keeps expect we can keep it's limitless so we can keep deepening and I'm I'm like you I've had many more some bigger than others people have different um different once you get more into this stuff you can learn about it but you you have people can have really significant shifts that can take like for me one of my big ones took two years to integrate and I really couldn't be in the world anymore I, I the level of sensitivity and the level of I had to almost relearn how to be human. Um, so then we can go to these really big, big blast opens and it's just a re, it's a deconstruction and a reorientation of the whole system. So it's not like, you know, learning as a child, we, we might grow each year, kind of. We all grow each year, hopefully. We can descend or, or ascend, you know, we can make some, have, you know, whatever. This is different this is it's a kind of a blowing open and I love what you say that a lot of us are helping each other to awaken and we're not necessarily called um awakening mentors or spiritual guides or spiritual teachers but what you're doing with the horses is deeply transformative and deeply spiritual because it's working with people from the inside it's rewiring the inside and everything changes in that place, right? Reality changes because suddenly I see reality in a different way. Therefore, it rises to meet me. I bring in different realities when I respond with what's happening in form in a different way. You know, you were a, a guest on a, another podcast called The Buddha at the Gas Pump podcast, which <laughs> I ha- when I had Emily Kazdotter on the on this podcast, I wasn't aware of that one, and someone told me about it. And then I listened to Emily's on on that one, and that was amazing. And then I think Shalan was on that one too. And then y- you've been on there, and that podcast is is called Buddha at the Gas Pump. Uh, it's conversations with spiritually awakening people. I love that he calls it spiritually awakening people. No one's awoken. No one's there yet. <laughs> But yeah. and it, and when I started listening to that, it's like I I don't understand ninety five percent of what they're talking about on there, but I do get the sense that oh, there's a whole lot more to this stuff than I thought there yeah. was. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's huge. I've actually been on it twice. <laughs> He's, uh, I was on it a few years ago and talking about my childhood and my life. Um, and then I was on it again just three or four months ago. So I, I was on it twice. And, yeah, it's complex. And the thing is, it's a bit like I'm reluctant to talk about it too much because it's a bit like French to Italian. I never want to bore people with stuff if it doesn't really meet them. But if you know what I'm talking about, if you you can understand a fraction of it, you're already awakening. This is the beauty otherwise it's going to be like I'm turning off this conversation I don't understand even even one percent if you feel 
a tingle or a, or a sense of understanding, even if it's not cognitive, even if it's not conscious in the brain, but it's it's a knowing inside, you're awakening already. And so life is the path. Life is the education. That's what we're here for. And so if any of this makes any sense, you might want to look into that stuff more deeply. And But that's my job now is as I help, and I'm booked out for six months I've got a wait list for my private sessions but helping people to deepen on their path and to open um, because so much comes up there and often a lot of it is the wounding and the trauma that we've accumulated in our lives and that's between us and life our fears our wounds and so we look at um, removing that and there's an old saying um the whole task then is to clear the eye of the heart that we may see God more closely. So all of the things between between us and, and God, we say, oh, God's not religious for me. And that can be a loaded word for some people, but but yeah, for me it's life. And it's the call me Eddie version of God, my God. My God's the call me Eddie version, the dancing, howling. You know, I have a poem that says, Oh, keep your God that doesn't say fuck. My God is dancing under moonbeams to Bowie. You know, like my God is that. Because we can make God, you know, God life loves us so much it will will put itself in any box we put it in. So we can make it what we want. Yeah, Shalan has a poem somewhat similar to that too. Um, About, about, I think it's called The Worst Thing We Ever Did. Yeah, like exactly. The worst, it's, have, you, have you heard of that one? Oh, you know, yeah, the, I love that the one. Wor- the, worst the worst thing, thing we ever did. Well, the worst thing we ever did was go, put God in big buildings and, and. Yeah, yeah. Shall I read you one of mine? You might like it. I'd, l- I'd love to hear one of yours. I actually shared one of yours today on oh, my um, Facebook group because it really, it really struck me. You know, what you are doing with people who are spiritually awakening, being an awakening guide, like helping them with that process, because there's a lot of processes we go through in life that there isn't a curriculum for. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And one of the things I struggle with is being someone who uh, – never thought they'd really be in the public eye. Like if, if you grow up and you want to be a, a big-time sportsman, whether you play football or whatever you play, or you want to be a musician, you kind of have the idea that when I get where I, when I get to be doing the things I want to be doing, that I want to be good at, a lot of people know who I am. And so there'd be a yeah. lot of that. Where when you accidentally end up in the public eye, there isn't a an education on how to how to deal with negative feedback and things like that. And the poem I I shared of yours today was the one the something about I think that you had a picture of Albert Einstein poking his tongue out. Oh. but the <laughs> yeah. poem was was about what if. Oh, I forget who it's. Can you I read have that it. one? Can I have it. That? I have it. Do you know, I've never read that one on a reading. I love that you chose that one. That was the last thing I expected. 
Um, I have it here. What if Leonard Cohen measured his poems by how many likes they got? Or Van Gogh reduced his paintings to one-hit Insta shots, then laid down his brush at brutal comments? What if Frida Kahlo threw in the towel due to assholes who said her brows needed shaping or her bum needed rounding and it just hurt too much to be reduced like that? What if Rumi was laughed out of town because he released his poems to the wrong crowd at the wrong times among too much online noise and full minds? To people who were moving too fast to remember their hearts and grasp devotion? What if Tennyson decided to lay down his pen because of despair at fucking algorithms? Or if Bukowski was silenced prematurely because social media doesn't favour swearing? And we miss the gold of his particular alchemy. What if Virginia Woolf gave up on the waves because her social media analytics couldn't get a publisher interested? Or if Einstein couldn't get traction because his profile pictures weren't that attractive and rendered him worthless? We create for the joy of it. We create for the delicious agony of it. We create because our hearts were forged in stars and we won't let each other forget it. Outcomes are irrelevant. We simply must create. I don't write poems to be a poet. I write poems for the life they bring through my body. And it is a tragedy that some may give that up because they believe other hearts will judge them or no one's listening. Sing your song. Sing it loud, unabashed, unadorned. Let it flood out of you, not a single note edited out. Sing. Let it baptize the world with its grace. There's no conformity that will buy us love, because it's always love given to a false self, and we know it deep down. The only love worth gaining is love for the truth of us. The only love worth bestowing is the honour of the truth of us. So let you spill out of you. The win is in choosing to dance, no matter what others might see. Sing. This world is blessed by your magic. There's only one of you walking the earth's surface. Sing as if your life force depends on it. Because my love, in all honesty, it does. And this world needs your beautiful heart. Yeah, that's a funny one. I just, my book has just come out, This Untamable Light. It's um, it's up for pre-order at the moment. But I never thought I would write a poetry book. I never meant to be a poet. I just would write poems because they would come and it was a joy to sit in my garden and be with the trees and write the poems. And then after a while, the publisher in America said, can we publish your poems? And I thought, that's ridiculous, <laughs> my little things. And then it just took on a life of its own. And so it's a joy. It's a joy. Uh, Shalon wrote the forward in that, didn't she? She did. She wrote the forward for it. Yeah, yeah, which is beautiful. That's very cool. Now, Shalon's a, a mystic poet like she downloads stuff is yeah. where does where does it come how does it come to you it's really similar for me something opens up it's an energy so I first I feel an energy come in and then I kind of ride the only way I can describe it is ride the energy ride that wave of energy and then I will start to just write and it can, can be really different energies that come in so that one was kind of 
funny and human and that I wouldn't say that was one of my best ones you know that was just a funny ditty but some of them come in and there's such a force and it just floods out it just floods out and then I'll leave it for a few days and I'll come back to it and I'll be like who wrote that where did that come from um you don't think about them you're not thinking about the words you're putting on the pages some I do some I do so they tend to kind of flow and then I might go back a few days later and play a bit with the words and that's more a mind thing but they often come through and some just come through completely completely cooked um yeah I'll read you one that's was completely cooked um which might be this one came out completely cooked like it just came out yeah yeah this one came out completely cooked Um, And they do sometimes. When I need sound healing, I bathe in cicada hum. When I need ministry, I let the grass lavish its deep devotion upon me and the dew drip its sermons right into my heart. I anoint my feet in puddles and I praise mud. I was never alone. Who am I fooling? I was fathered by mountains, mothered by ocean, I was taught by landslides and caught by the woman I became during them. Stars serenade me with their chorus of hallelujahs, offer themselves up as pinpricks of wonder and guidance in the darkness. Trees salute me, stand guard and strengthen me, offer their wisdom if I'm listening. I am all existence. My friends are rocks and praying mantises. I thread their hearts through mine like an endless chain. Let the sky teach me loyalty to warmth and shadow, the humility of hail and the sanctity of change. And through it all, love, a blaze from magma up through the souls of me. I give the mother my body for colonising. We are ember and water all at once. We are so deeply loved just like this with our limping, broken hearts full of fear. We are and are and are sacred mess, perfect process. For this and another thousand reasons, we are blessed. Yeah. So these poems, they just pour out. Some can be about dancing. Right. So that one just came out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so the interesting thing is Shalane does the same thing. Like it just comes out of her. And your poems and her poems sound a lot similar as in the ideas they're bringing across. It's like it's all coming from the same place. And what's really interesting is one line in that poem was, my friends are the rocks. I had, yeah. a, I had a guest on the podcast recently, a Native American uh, lady named Jordana Walt, and she has this rock named Rugar that spoke to her one day and so she keeps Rugar at home and has conversations with him and Rugar tells her all sorts of amazing things. Wow, incredible. Because it's all consciousness, right? Mm. It's This is the thing. So when we awaken, this can be the weird stuff. I used to see trees as trees. I just, I really did. I saw a tree as a tree. And when I had the second really big blast open, I became a tree. I know that sounds nuts. It would have sounded nuts to that version of me, but I 
became a tree. I could feel what that tree felt. I could feel it's just consciousness. If we think of mist, light that animates all things, it animates a rock. It's just the rock doesn't have eyes and a mouth like you and me. It animates the tree. It animates me. The ingredients, it's all the same. It just takes a different form. So what animates a horse is exactly the same as what animates me, consciousness. It just expresses in a different way through the animal because the animal has different faculties. It doesn't speak English, right? It has a different, we don't know what it feels like to be a horse. We don't know the intelligence, be that they're far more intelligent than humans. Us humans, we assume a hierarchy and we put ourselves at the top. And it's been fascinating for me to become other things and to see, holy shit, actually, it's humbling. The great well of existence, it's humbling to see sameness everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, Emily is a, a, an animal communicator, but she also, you know, her, she will inhabit the consciousness of the animal. So it sounds like that happened with the tree. Have you, have you had that experience a lot? Yeah, it doesn't happen with individual. Like, so the tree is an, is an object. It's an individual object as we perceive it in this plane. So it doesn't happen all the time like that for me. It happens just sometimes. But that was curious, actually. I'll tell you, I've never told that story. It was, I was married for 17 years and, and I left after a series of big um, big awakenings. We're still very close friends. He lives a few blocks away and we share a daughter. <clears throat> so we co-parent her together. And it was a beautiful, a beautiful parting of ways, actually. It was just right. But anyone who's in a marriage will know marriage dynamics. So he, he had been gardening and he had cut down all my lavender plants. He had a machete and he'd gone around and cut down these lavender. And I was oh my God, you cut down my plants. And he thought he was pruning, but he he killed them all. And so a few weeks later, he said to me, just in the garden, do you mind if I, can I cut the fig tree? And I said, of course, I don't care about that tree. I said it without thinking. It just came out. Of course, I don't care about that tree. You know, do what you like. And as soon as I said that, I became the tree. I, I, I was looking out of the tree. <laughs> I was the tree. And I could feel everything that the tree felt. I could feel the impact of my words of that human Lucy, her words, I don't care about the tree. It, it hurt the tree. It felt pain just like I feel pain. And simultaneously, I was still Lucy. So I could feel, no, 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 you're misunderstanding me was the kind of, but, but, yeah, I was looking out of the tree. I could feel its pain. I could feel its fear of being cut. I could feel all of that at once. And then I kind of came out of that. It happened quite fast. I came out of it and I wondered inside because I'd had these huge, this huge awakening and I hadn't really been able to speak to my husband about it because he didn't. I tried. He couldn't understand. 
And I, I went inside, I had that experience, and I was washing up with the dishes, looking out the window at the, the tree. And I felt such awe and grief, like, oh, my God. It, it was actually incredibly painful for me to realise, me, the human, this all of these trees are beings like me and I've never realized and and I've been in a in a trance in that way I used to see people hug trees you know like hippies hugging trees and think oh idiots like you know I never just even gave them any second of thought I was like what a bunch of whatever yeah yeah get get out and do something you know i'd be like do something but go and i was saving orphans for 15 years so i'd be like you're busy hugging trees i totally got it i totally got it you're hugging the tree because you get the energy you transfer the energy between one another so later that evening i went out into the tree and i i put my hands on the tree and i communed with that tree and i said i'm so sorry I didn't mean that I don't care about you. I mean, I didn't, I wouldn't be impacted if he pruned your branch. You know, I talked to the tree. But then I could see I didn't care about the tree. Like I had said those words thinking it was a different meaning. But actually, in reality, if I'm really honest with myself, I have not cared about trees. I have not really cared about the land I walk on. It has been there in service to me. There was a me in the center of everything, and that was just there. And now I see everything so differently. I don't know, I'd be curious how you see it, but I see the earth as a being, as alive as I am. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. I'm terrible at composting. I I try my best, <laughs> but I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm deepening in that space. And now there's a connection to everything in a way that there wasn't before. Um, and and it keeps deepening and it keeps it keeps opening. So I understand completely when you say this guest had a rock that she spoke to. Whereas before, I would have thought she's imagining it. She's making it up. She's, <laughs> right. Yeah. She's a bit nuts. And and you know, I was a journalist. I ended up going into journalism and being you know. And then I was a humanitarian aid worker for fifteen years, going off to crises or orphanages. And so I was like a doer. You get out and you make it better. You don't. Now I realize there's so much from intention and energy. What, what, as we're, how we walk in the world is that with patience, humility, care, because that infuses everything we do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the something I've been interested in for quite a while, and we've talked about a lot in the podcast, is indigenous practices and indigenous ways of looking at things and also <clears throat> shamanism and and it's funny you're up you know from what i've read about shamanism and shamans they've all had they've all been you know you don't become a shaman the easy way you you go through lots of trials and tribulations and you know possibly near death experiences things like that and it sounds like your childhood kind of led you to that but what you're talking about here with the 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 trees or whatever is it's a very indigenous world view so it's it's not you know in the way society looks at the world these days it's a it might sound a bit whack job but really that's how we evolved 
to actually be. I had a I had a, a, a Native American Lakota lady named Jessica Whiteplume on the podcast in the first year, and in that podcast, she said something about the standing silent nation. She's talking about the you know the people nation and the horse nation, but then she talked about the standing silent nation. She said the trees and the plants and the rocks. And when I heard that, I thought, hmm, I never really thought of it that way. And, you know, since then I've looked into it a lot. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's really an it's, – it's not some whack job, hippie, whatever way of looking at things. It's actually how our ancestors at some point in time would have, would have, looked, at, would have looked at things. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it, and, and, and all this, some of this stuff you're on about and I'm on about and things, you know, they call it, some of it's called New Age Spirituality. And I can't wrap my head around that title because everything that I've looked into that's referred to as New Age are thousands of year old practices before yeah. organized religions, before organized governments. And so it's yeah. like, I don't think it's, old age a new age spirituality i think it's it's old age wisdom is what it what it is i totally agree i love how you described that there was such a such a beautiful explanation because and subtly we can think of old wisdom as being less evolved right because it was a thousand years ago well haven't we moved on in the thousand years no we descend you know, and we see that with the Dark Ages. We see that with periods in history where we descend, like we go backwards in our evolution. But there's a lot of stuff, you know, we can even look at the time of the Egyptian pyramids and things like that where they could build things. The engineering feats of those days were far beyond our engineering understanding now, right? So we can look at examples, scientific solid examples like that, where we can see that there's a time in our evolution thousands of years ago when we knew more than we know now, we knew how to build pyramids with um, far more uh, um, complexity than we would know how to do now, right? Same with spirituality. I agree totally. It's not new age. It's wisdom. And we are going back to it. We are going back. There's so much wisdom and listening and silence and, um, yeah, yeah. there's so much wisdom to be found in nature. Yeah, one of our good friends who's also been on the podcast twice is from New Zealand, Jane Pike. So she lives in down in Dunedin. And it's funny, she's just, she's just started releasing poetry. And that wasn't one of her. When I first met Jane, she was a, uh, an equestrian mindset coach is what she was, but Jane is so much more than that. But recently, uh, her and another podcast guest, Rupert Isaacson, did a retreat here. And then the day after that, Jane and Rupert and I did an online course about connection and things like that. But Jane was saying, she said a line on there, it was so cool, or, you know, a bit on there. She said, you know, when I'm walking in nature, not only am I feeling nature, but nature is feeling me. That's when right. I'm seeing nature, not only am I seeing, but I'm being seen. And when I'm hearing That's nature, right. not only am I hearing, I'm being heard. 
And I was like, mm-hmm. yes, that's the stuff right there. That's the stuff. It's reciprocal. Yeah. It's a reciprocal relationship that we have. And the other thing I love about this connection with nature is nature shows us to ourselves all the time. Every lesson we go through, we can find in nature. There's a, there's a Chinese bamboo tree that takes, you plant the seed and it takes four years to water. You have to have faith and trust. You have to keep watering that seed. Nothing comes up, nothing grows. And then at the four-year mark, it just grows all of a sudden. And I often use that because it's like humans. We can be doing the work and, and trying to heal. You know, we have our same old patterns playing out. We have our same old bullshit. And we're like, but I'm doing that. I'm working on it. I'm meditating. I'm meeting with my therapist. I'm doing all the things I can do and nothing's changing. And I often use that. Like all of a sudden, something will move if we have that faith, if we keep coming back. Or we can look at a little seed, right, <clears throat> the way that, I always tell this story often about the little seeds with their hard shell and they're all together and one seed starts to crack and break and then the shoot starts to come up and it, as it travels toward through the mud and the dirt, all the other seeds are saying, oh, look at him, he looks disgusting, he's breaking down, he's breaking open, what a mess. And then we see that seed head toward the light and it doesn't know what's happening to it. It's growing and it doesn't know, it's afraid. And then eventually it blooms. And when you watch slow-mo pictures of, of flowers blooming, they shut and they open and they shut and they until they open completely. And it's much like our process, that sacred process we talked about before, that human process of, of becoming the fullness of ourselves, becoming all that we are. We're just like that seed. And then another little seed goes, how do I become that? And she goes, you have to break down, you have to break, you have to get messy first. But... It's, it's the pulse of existence runs through all of us, trees, leaves, seeds, and we see ourselves in that. We see that there's mud and a lotus, right? The beauty, the light, and the darkness, and it's all one thing. Uh, I'll, I'll read you one more that's about this. It's exactly what we're talking about. <clears throat> Please do. Yeah, this is called Summer Ashram. We don't need to dress up our spirituality in fancy language. Sanskrit might as well be cicada hum. Church is apple blossom and watermelon. Choir is a chorus from a bank of summer flowers worshipping sky. Our sacred drum is wailing children stomping sand. I am and am and am. I get my sermons from slugs. I am schooled by sea glass and the alchemy of lifetimes of broken hearts. I am more than human. And if I can't trust when I'm scared, then how can I say I trust? If I can't love here when things fall apart, then I can't say I truly love. If peace inside of me relies on peace outside of me, it's not peace. I am majesty and algae. I am spirituality. No robe needed, no green smoothie, no building, no costume, no channeling, no download, no archetype, no exclusive circle, no animal skull, fancy dress, skin drum can emulate or replace this. We are and are and are limitless. 
There's no guru but your own breath. So don't kiss my feet and feed me sugar. Let's lie in the long warm grass and worship all the light we can and cannot see together. So that's much like that the silent one standing there, you know, the, the light that we ca- cannot see and the light that we can. All of existence is alive around us and it wants to wants to support us. We can call on that, stands guard and strengthens us, you know. Did that yeah. one come out fully cooked? I can't remember actually with that one. Maybe not. Maybe that needed some thinking. I can't quite mm. remember. So tell us about your book. What's it called and where can people get it? That's It's called This Untamable Light. And I put a moth on the front of it because it's that metamorphosis that we all have from lava to to fully fully cooked. Um, it's on Amazon. It's on all the Amazons, Barnes and oh, Noble. Cool. And it's, it's being released on November 21st, actually. Um, so you can pre-order it now and then it comes out then and... Yeah, and I also hold retreats, and I do um, coming to California next year to hold a retreat. At oh, Mount you're doing one at Mount Madonna. Yeah, yeah. Very so looking cool. forward to that. And Shalane and I are holding a writers' retreat together. Um, and I hold it. I have a community online that has just started. Actually, there's about sixty-five of us so far, and we just come together to meditate and and cook and be with one another. And that's been really beautiful, really beautiful group of beings. So and you what can is that find called? that's called a sangha, which is a Zen word for community. You know, because a lot of us, like you say, we we open in these ways. We go through all of this, and we're quite alone. We don't mm. have, we can't find in our families, our communities, our workplaces, others like us. Sounds a bit alien, like finding someone like me. It it does, you know. We just had the the podcast summit in Australia, and and um, you know everybody loved it. And that was one of the things they said: like being in, being around like minded people, where you can have these profound conversations that they don't look at you like you're weird. Um, you know, it's not an everyday occurrence for a lot That's of people. That's right, and yeah, and light expands light, like we mm. talked about earlier when we come together. We actually deepen and grow together because I see myself in you. I find myself reflected back at me. And it's so key to kind of deepen and solidify. So we have that that group online. And, and I also run more intimate groups for people that people can be going through huge things. They can have energy moving through the body in crazy ways. So you talked about the the room tilting. Stuff like that can happen tenfold, you know. Um, there's a thing called kundalini where energies blast out of different centers in the body. And so that group is about 15 and we meet to have really in-depth conversations about and to support each other. So whatever's happening, you know, a lot of people find their marriages might break down or their friends might fall away because they've changed so deeply right. and they – they do find they come into new relationships and new friendships as time goes on, but you have to often go through a period of, of no man's land while the changes take hold. And so this way it's just a place where people can find support and it's not all rainbows and unicorns. Sometimes it's it can be hard and so, yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds amazing. So 
you mentioned working for orphanages and NGOs, or uh, sorry, um, aid organisations for 15 years. I don't think we have, I mean, I really wanted to go there and find out all about that, but I really don't think we have time to go through half of your life experiences. So I thought what we might do now is is go to the questions that um, you had chosen, because otherwise we'll run out of time. <laughs> I know you've got to get to somebody after after this. Um, so the first question that you chose was if you could spread a message across the world, one that people would listen to, what would your message say? It would just be that you're so deeply precious. You. You are so deeply unique. There isn't another one of you in the whole world with your um, conglomerate of gifts and beauty and insight what you see, how you are in the world, and it matters. It matters. So giving yourself permission to be you, letting yourself be all that you are, and that's kind of an internal gaze. We talked earlier on about the external gaze of mother, boss, social circle, culture, telling us what we should be. No, if we can notice how we orient to that external gaze, am I enough? Do you like me? And we can bring it inside. What do I think of me? Do I want to be doing this job? Is this really my full expression? Do I want to be with these people? Your life is precious. Your time is precious and you are precious. So, yeah, really coming into what is true for you and picking up the call of the universe. When it, you know, when we get that hunch, I should be doing something else. I want, to, I want to express in a different way. Don't wait. It's now. Yeah, and actually, and actually, yeah, becoming all that you are. Yeah, that would be my message. Because we're blessed. It's, it's not complete until what has nourished us comes round to nourish others. You know, all of the suffering that we've been through, we alchemize it into our gifts. The suffering is a gift. We alchemize it into our strength, our resilience, our compassion, our kindness. We all know that person who hasn't suffered much and is actually quite a wanker, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> like they're rude, they're entitled, and you're like, you just need to fail a bit and suffer a bit, and then you'll be much nicer. Our suffering is the making of us. And once we can alchemize that, really meet that, and turn that into our gifts and let ourselves live, then the world benefits from all that we are. So if we're full of joy and happiness and accomplished and really living in a way that's true, that only benefits everybody around us. Yeah. Do you feel <coughs> that, um, I, can, I love what you said right then about suffering. I love what you said about the whole thing, but the suffering thing really hit me. Do you feel, feel that if people change their perspective about suffering and kind of kind of embrace it um that 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 can be a bit of a turning point huge turning point and that can be in the macro looking back looking at what did that if we look at all the suffering what did that give me mm. so we didn't talk about this but i was very ill for about mm, five years 
those six months where I was bedridden, I couldn't walk, I couldn't wash myself, I lost my voice completely, blah, blah, blah. And I and then numerous years where I had to learn to walk again and I had to da-da-da. So there's, that was one period where in the, at the time it was terrifying and it was hard. So I don't talk about all this stuff from lofty heights. I talk about it from really I get it in the trenches experience, right? That was after my childhood and everything. When we're in it, it can feel like the worst thing in the world. I want to honour that and I get that and I understand whatever version of suffering you've had. I'm a therapist too, so I hear people suffering day in and day out, you know, sexual abuse, violence from their father, all sorts of things. So all of that is true. And we can look back and see what did it give me when I was Mm. sick like that? What it gave me was a deeper connection with myself. I could only lie there. I could only reflect on my life and think, is this really, if I get well again, what am I going to do with that health? It was the first time I had a sense of the gift that health and strength is. So Mm. we can look back on our whole lives and replace blame and anger and fear with what did it give me? And it always gives more than it takes. It's just whether we're willing to see that. So that can be a a great exercise, but it's also in the moments. So that's the macro, but the micro is in the moments. Our suffering opens us, doesn't it? It opens us deeply. When we're on our knees, it breaks the body open in such a way that we can receive life and start listening to life and hearing things and asking questions about what we want to do who we truly are who am I going to be in this world um and letting pain in because what often happens and this is really important so we have in the western world the highest levels of anxiety and depression right we have big pharma making a shit ton of money off people all that Nothing wrong with that if you need to have medication. That's totally fine. Most people, many do. But what happens is we feel we feel pain and we put a lid on it. It could be someone, our boss said something at work, somebody broke up with us, whatever the thing is. could be a little thing, a big thing. We put a lid on it. We don't want to feel the pain. If I can get away with it, away from it, then I won't have to be in the discomfort or the agony of feeling pain. So we we numb, we go and get drunk, we take drugs, another pair of parted legs, we eat food, we scroll, we shop, we buy more land, whatever it is, and try to distract and numb, but all the while that pain is under there, under that lid in our bodies, and we might feel this as a deep discordant hum in the body of anxiety, and we might not even notice it, we feel it buzzing away, and we doing the dishes, going to the job, and it's buzzing away underneath. If we look and realize, oh, my gosh, that anxiety is there, or depression because it's repressed, we can feel it. We can actually stop trying to run away from it and turn toward it. It sounds nuts. I don't want to go toward the thing that hurts. But we can never cure an inside pain with an outside solution it's a lie people want to make money off you so they will tell you if you get that dress if you wear that makeup if you get that ferrari if you get that promotion it will take away the pain it doesn't a wound is inside nothing on the outside can can reach it 
So to heal a wound, to heal pain, anxiety, depression, we go into it. It's a portal. And when we enter, when we turn around and look it in the eye and walk toward it, we go straight in. And on the other side of that fear is fearlessness. On the other side of that pain and discontent is peace. But we have to go through and in and feel it. Now, if we haven't done that all our lives, from zero to 55, say, there's going to be a lot of accumulated pain and the levels of anxiety will be higher because from zero to today, not much of it's been met or processed. So it might be so high and so overwhelming that we feel it's going to flood me and overwhelm me. It doesn't. If you go in, but what you might have is a period where you feel worse before you feel better. It's like a, a wound, the pus, if we finally go in, the pus is all coming out. So it looks messy and yucky, but it's actually clearing. We need the pus to come out for it to clear. So if we can tolerate that, and we might find people to help us sit in that pain, therapists and things, but if we can go into that pain and actually grieve it, actually feel it, then it can start to move Feeling is not the sign of a broken body. It's the sign of a perfectly functioning body. I'm going to feel this because my body wants me to. And for all these years, I tried to get away from it. But it doesn't go anywhere. It stays. This is why we get tumors and cancers and get stuck in the body. So when we start to feel it, it might look worse before it looks better. But after a time, it starts to clear, starts to clear. And then we enlighten. All of that shadow starts to, to clear off our off our system. And we enlighten. Yeah. So that's how we do it in the micro. Mm. I feel like you were talking directly to me right then. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that <laughs> in your face. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's yeah, that's pretty much where I'm I'm at working through that. Yeah, that's why I said 55. What's going on for you? Do you feel like talking about it or not? Not. Oh uh, no, I've discussed it enough on the podcast. I think. I mean, we can talk about it afterwards. But yeah, right. I, I was. Yeah. You know, I was shut. You don't know much about my story, but I was shut down for a very long time, and I've just uh, you know spent the last probably five years trying to work through it without being able to actually even get in there. You know, the defences were pretty strong. Yeah. And, and uh, just recently we've started to, to chip away at it. So it's, it's, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love hearing that because, and that's really helpful to listeners because a lot of people say that I can't, I try and I can't feel and I can't. And often we're numb if we sense and feel into our hearts, oh, it's a really common human experience to think, I don't know if I can even love. I don't know if I've even loved. I don't even feel a life, liveness in my heart. I can't, I think I, you know, whatever. And often we're numb because what's happened is so painful that our body's intelligence has said, we're going to shut this down. And that's an intelligent response until it often wants healing when we're in a, safe people will say but my life is good now I've got a wife I've got a beautiful house I've got happy kids exactly it doesn't come up for healing you know when we're fighting the war when we're in the trench in Vietnam 
fighting the war with soldiers. We're not going to do our healing then. We get PTSD and we do the healing and we're at home in, in our wife's beautiful house and we're sitting on the couch and then we start to scream and think we hear shrapnel and and it's the same with us now. It often comes up for healing when all is well because it can and your body is so innately intelligent. So you, it'll bring up what needs healing at that time and you'll start to feel a sense of, I want, I need to go in and I need to heal, but I don't know how. It's exactly what you said, like, I can't reach it. What's, why? And that sacred process, there's a lot of power and intention and in saying, like, if anyone's listening and they're like, I don't know how to even start, intention, say to life, say to the silent watchers, the silent, what did you call them? The silent, um, training silent nation. The silent nation. I love that. Standing, standing, standing silent nation. That's what Jessica I love that. called them. Yeah, so you can say to them, you can say to God, you can say to the stars, you can say to great spirit, you can say to source, awareness, whatever you want to call it. Show me, help me, help me to open, be with me, support me. It's my work. I have to walk to the top of the mountain. No one's going to carry me, but come with me, walk beside me and bring the right people, books, podcasts, whatever I need across my path to help me unlock, to help me open, to help me grow, to help me let go. And we can never, ever, ever let go of something we haven't held. Mm. We have to hold that pain to let go of it. But what we've been taught for the last hundred years at least is, is, is toxic positivity. Just go around it and over it. <laughs> Just leave it buried. Shut the key, you know. This is really kind of last couple of hundred years stuff, you know, and that we had all these housewives on Valium in the 50s doing, you know, with big smiles and perfect houses on Valium and falling apart, right, because we weren't supposed to mention those things. We're supposed to be perfect and good. Actually, there's such beauty in our brokenness. Yeah, there's such beauty and bounty in our brokenness. It's what makes us who we are. It's what brings us our gold and unlocks our humility, our fire, our compassion, our poetry, our connection with horses or people. We can only get that when we feel. And we can't, this is so important, if we numb off or turn off pain, it's not indiscriminate. We also turn off joy. If we turn know, the volume can I, inter- down. can I interrupt real quick? Do you know who Brene Brown yeah. is? Yes. Yes, I well, do. My, I do this whole journey of mine has been because someone mentioned Brene Brown about five years ago. And so I got one of her books. Well, I got a lot of her books, but one of her books I was listening to, and she said you can't selectively suppress emotions. If you suppress the oh, lower wow. ones, you automatically suppress the high ones. And that that has been the catalyst for the last five years for me was me thinking, well, I, I know that I've got, you know, like grief and fear and those sorts of things suppressed, but I've never thought about the high. I never, I've never given you thought to the higher ones. And so, yeah, that, that, I mean, even this, yes. even this podcast was kind of brought about from that, that journey. So, yeah, so what you're talking about there is, yeah, is. It's so important because important. we're 80s kids, right? We grew up in right. the 80s. And, and we were sold toxic positivity. We were indoctrined with 
just put a smile on it, just chin up, just laugh it off, you know, be positive. And, and, and that was a response to a previous era. But when we do that, we are bypassing what is true. What is true for me in this moment is my mother just hurt me. Ouch. Am I going to bypass that and bury it so it goes into this ice inside me, this energetic tumour of all the accumulated pain that I haven't wanted to feel between zero and now? Am I going to bury another thing and another thing? It's like having pizza boxes all over your living room. You just throw another pizza box in there and ignore it. Eventually you can't move. It's the same with pain. If I go over it, for the sake of being positive, then, I, then I'm accumulating it in my system. I'm not processing it. Feelings want to be felt. So she's totally right. I love that she says that um, because it's right. If, you, if we numb off pain, we turn the volume down on pain, that volume switch is the same for all of us. And this is why people often say, like, I can't feel. I just don't feel joy. I don't know why. And can be damn sure it's because you turn the volume down on the pain that wants feeling. So if we can go toward the pain, this is this is the key. Go toward that pain doesn't mean we drown in it. There's a difference between feeling and meeting what is true in this moment and summoning it like, oh, let me find it. I, I don't teach to summoning things. I teach be in this moment. Scan the, scan the body and see what's true. Be in silence. What's true for me right now? I'm feeling some dread. What is it? Look underneath it. Look inside it. And it'll speak to you. We don't need your lifetime. We just need the last 24 hours. And right now, what's happening now? And feel that. And, and, and there's a difference between drowning in it you know, completely drowning in it. We're no good to anyone. So there's a balance. There's a there's a balance. There's a beauty. So we feel it. We let it express. We might get tender. And then we go about our day. We go about our day and we, we just let it be what it is. Yeah, S- sadness. I'm not trying to take it away or fix it. And I'm not judging it. So whatever's coming up, just let it come up. Let yourself be what you are. Yeah, the whole world will judge you. Don't do it to yourself. So if you hear that judging voice, just like, yeah, I feel pain at this. Yeah. And just feel it out, not fix it. Yeah. Right. You know, for the, my wife has always suffered with a degree of anxiety. And for the longest time, she was always looking for things so she didn't feel anxiety. And then the you know, the guidance she's had in the last few years has been more about what you just said was like, don't make it go away. Yeah. Have it, have it move through you instead of, yeah. you know, having a technique to stop it from being there, allow it to, to move through. Yeah. You. It's a messenger. It's if we just want to stop it, we're not getting the message, like let it, let it breathe through us. It's like ice. It, will, it melts when it, when it can feel. A feeling's function is to feel. I'm going to feel this feeling because my body wants me to. And inside and underneath it, there'll be good reason. 
That is the longest answer to one question I've ever had on the podcast, but it was great. I mean, I'd let you go because it's like, that was gold. I didn't want to interrupt any of that. I'm so sorry. It didn't mean No, it no, don't, be, don't apologize. That was amazing. Um, the <laughs> next question that you chose, and you may have already answered, uh, it was, what is the most worthwhile thing you put your time into, something that changed the course of your life? Yeah, it was that connection with the real, you know, with the real, which is that which I am, great spirit. So always filling and connecting there and then moving in the world from that place instead of trying to fill up, get energy hits from things outside of me, really getting clear that, yeah, I can eat the yummy thing or drink the wine or meet with a friend, but all of that energy that I get from that is going to leave. That's passing. It's impermanent. The only undepletable source of true energy is with source, with that which I am. So filling up there and then moving in the world from that place. Makes sense. Uh, so the next, I'm going to have a guess. I'm, I'm I'm guessing in my mind what you answered the next question is, but it, the next question you chose is where do you go, what do you do to relieve stress or recharge your batteries? Or where do you find the motivation to do what you do? Do you want to guess it or do you want me just to say and you've already guessed it? Oh, I was going to guess to recharge your batteries. I'm sure it'd have something to do with nature. <laughs> it does, yeah. Um, actually, you know, it, it can do, but it's it's going inward. It's getting yeah. really still. It was going to be one of those two. <laughs> yeah, and often that's in nature. And I drink. I love to drink green tea. So I'll drink green tea. I'll contemplate life, and I'll I do that every day for about three hours. Yeah, and I meditate, and I pray, and I write, and I I let it all move as it wants. There's no structure. I just have the time, space for the shaman. If we give ourselves that space, often we book ourselves up and we move fast. But we need space and air to listen to what's wanting to come through. Is it a poem or a thought or some healing? Something's in pain, it needs healing and alchemizing. It's a space where I can just sit and be instead of do. I'm just in beingness. Yeah. Wow. And um, what do you feel your true purpose is in the world? It's going to sound really cheesy, but I'm okay with that. To, to be a light in the world, that's my, that's my heart's desire. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're doing it so you don't have any problems there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the, the, the one you chose that almost everybody has chosen, what is your relationship like with fear? Did almost everyone choose that? Wow, that's mm. cool. I've got to listen to some of these podcasts. They'd be awesome. It kind of gives um, you an idea of the sort of people they have on the podcast because that's not a conversation that most people would want to have. And almost there's almost been nobody that has not chosen it. Wow, I'm so fascinated by that. I thought nobody would choose that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I touched on it earlier. I go into fear. I, I, sometimes it's a process, it can take me time, but eventually I am somebody who will turn around, I'm only five foot one, 
and I'm blonde, so I'm little, right? I'm little, my body. But I have this warrior spirit, and it was burnt into being in the crucible of my life. My life was so fucking hard, most of it, to be frank, that I had to become, there's a steel in me. So I'm this kind of love and light person, but that is grounded in a deep, resolute sobriety and a steel and a strength and a resilience because you can only really be deeply loving in a world that doesn't value love, that thinks of light and love as weakness. You can only really maintain that and choose that and be that when you are strong. And the way that I got there is to turn to fear and go straight in. I look it in the eye and I'm like, I'm fucking terrified and I'm going in. Mm. <laughs> and, and that's the only way out because what we fear owns us. So if I keep turning away from it and, and trying to keep away, it, it fucking owns me. It's always there in the background, right? If I turn and I go, I might have to hold my breath and jump. But I do. It was, I've done it many times in my life. I, I became a television journalist at one point and it was an amazing job for a little girl who grew up in the hood. And I left and everyone thought I was nuts. And everyone said, you'll never get another job like that. And, I, and I, it wasn't true, so I left. And same with my marriage. We didn't fight much. We were best friends. We grew up together. We, we had a lot of money. I didn't have a job. I was a mum of a four-year-old. It made no sense logically for me to leave. But I knew. I knew he was my brother, not my lover. So I turned toward that fear of you're going to be poor, you're not going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I jumped and I left. So, yeah, for me, the, the way to fearlessness is straight into fear, into the eye of the dragon. What's the worst wow. that can happen? What's the worst that can happen, yeah. No, that was... We die. <laughs> it's like we don't really die. So. Yeah, well, yeah. see, that's, that's, that's the thing is we don't really die because we might lose this physical form, but spiritually we don't die. But see, that for me, that's, there's a difference between uh, understanding that on a on one level like yeah i totally get that and then actually doing the thing that you could die from you know what i mean you know what i mean like like understand i mean i i i grasp yeah i i grasp that i get that yeah. um but yeah. then there's the the level where you walk that as well as you know yeah. you can embody that as well as just mentally that's quantify it, it. that's it yeah, the mind wants to know, but the being understands. The mind can accumulate all sorts of ideas. But this is the thing about spirituality. It's not about collecting spiritual beliefs or ideas. It's about being it. Can we be it? Can we embody it? We can only give what we embody. We can only give what we embody. So often there's a gap between what I know, right, well, I know to be true. I know I'm not in love with my wife. I know that there's a deadness. I know that there's whatever. So I know that to be true. And it has been for years and years and years and years. I'm not whimsical. I'm not going to throw something out on a whim. I'm not impulsive. But it's it's true for years and years and years. And I know. 
and I know, or I know I should leave this job. I know. There can be a gap between what I know and what I do, and that's going to cause pain. So that's a misalignment where the truth of my being is not moving as the way of my being. So we come into deep alignment when the truth of my being is also the way of my being. Mm. And when there's a gap, I'm always going to feel split. And I'm always going to be in pain from that split. So yeah, I left my husband, but it was for me as well. Yes, it was hard before it was easier. It's much, it's awesome now. But, but if I had stayed, I would have suffered far more because of that gap between what is true and what my body is doing. I'm staying in this house. I'm staying in this bed. So same with jobs that I've left. Yeah, I could have stayed as a, as a television journalist. It was for our biggest news channel, TV channel, news station in New Zealand. I got a lot of street cred. The poor little hood rat who never had that wanted that. You know, yes, I could have sold out to that version of me, but I never would have been happy truly. So what did I gain? Nothing. So if we can endure some some pain, some some discomfort, unpleasant feelings for a while, what we gain is so much greater. It's the, it's the crazy thing. We often avoid that little bit of pain or that pain. And then we stay in the marriage another 30 years, right? <laughs> we have 30 years of, 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 of misalignment. Yeah. So when we change on the inside, when we emerge in these ways, it asks to be embodied. It's not really loss when we leave that job or leave that relationship. It's realignment. Mm. It feels like loss. It's realignment. The new partner comes. The new role comes. But we have to give it the opportunity to. Yeah. I'm talking a lot. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. We've been talking for two hours now, so we probably should wrap this up. But thank you so much for joining me. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I knew you were going to be fascinating, but you were even more fascinating than I imagined. So it's very cool. <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm the same. I know I want to go back over your back catalogue and listen to all the podcasts all of a sudden. There's yeah. been some pretty amazing people on there. Um, so how do... Give me your, all your contact details. How do people find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, so they can go to my website, which is uh, lucy-grace.com. And if they want to listen to my poems, they can. people follow me on Facebook for that. That's a really good way, Lucy Grace on Facebook. And all of my poems are there for free. Some of them are on my website. All of my offerings are on the website. And the poetry book um, – is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and it's not just poetry, you know, like poetry has a way of unlocking truth below mind because it hits us in the being, it penetrates the being, that part of us that never forgets who we are, that part of us, it's like a, an energetic alchemy mm. because we're not trying to think about it, it just gets us, you know, when that gives you, so I think that's the medicine of poetry, it, it moves us. Yeah, so that's all. That's all on Amazon, and, and yeah, I would 
be so honored if you if you took a copy of the book home that would be wonderful it's my first book your first of many <laughs> fingers crossed yeah fingers crossed well thank you so much for joining me and uh, for you guys at home thanks so much for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of the journey on podcast thanks for being a part of the journey on podcast with warwick schiller Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.